Hello there. You're listening to Manufacturing Tomorrow, brought to you by the Ohio Manufacturing Institute at The Ohio State University. I'm Katherine Kelly, your host. Today, we are speaking with Jim Vanosky, Forbes contributor and manufacturing expert. As a Forbes writer, he has covered the challenges and opportunities that face manufacturers, highlighting topics as diverse as the role of digital technologies in prosthetics production, generative design, mass personalization, and fiesta wear. Jim leads teams for plant and corporate manufacturing and supply chain initiatives. He has been a site leader for Midwest Green Products, a large distillery in Lawrenceburg, Indiana, and spent more than 15 years in plant system engineering and corporate leadership roles at General Mills. Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks, Catherine. Great to be here. Last month, you wrote in Forbes about uh, small manufacturers attending the National Association of Manufacturers Board of Directors meeting. Uh, They voiced their concerns as well as possible solutions on a number of issues, including the skilled labor shortage, which we know is looming large, and the onset of Industry 4.0. What new technologies and processes appear to be the most disruptive to the small and mid-sized firms? I think uh, you you touched on uh, Industry 4.0, and obviously it's just a great time to be in manufacturing with just the burgeoning technology we have coming our way and all the options that opens up to us. I think it's a little frightening for the smaller outfits out there because there's a concern about being left behind. And obviously, you know, they're not awash in cash necessarily. So thinking about automating things and uh, adding headcount to be able to program and maintain, I think that's a a key point that they worry about. And uh, what did, you said that there were some um, solutions discussed. Um, So what did they, consider as steps they could take to overcome some of these current challenges? Well, you know, what's interesting there is I think the number one solution that people need to consider is ignoring it. And it sounds kind of counterintuitive. Uh, I've talked to so many small folks who not only express that concern that I can't keep up, but more of the, I don't see how it fits for me. You know, I uh, have some friends up in my old hometown, Upper Michigan, Uh, The folks at Stormy Cromer make a winter hat, iconic winter hat, and talking to Gina Thorson up there, and she says, really, we can't automate what we do. It's too custom. It's too, too, uh, you know, one-off in its own way. Same with the woman I talked to for that article about the uh, NAM conference was Nicole Walters out of HM Manufacturing in Illinois, and she has, like, a dozen, 13 changeovers a day. She can't really automate, keep up with the just sheer pace of change she has to do. And so really my recommendation to the small people is take a step back and really consider, is that something you even need? Beyond that though, I think one of the exciting things about technology is it is going to drive things to be more affordable, uh, more compact, more suitable to the smaller guys, because in the past it's always been focused on, on the big manufacturers, the uh, multinational corporations with huge plants. And, uh, you know, nowadays you see these small robots and cobots and things like that that'll fit right in with a much smaller operation. Well, that part that you said about the, um, you know, there, there's the, what I've heard is the human element, you know, is, is still uh, looms large um, with manufacturers. And, you know, I, I think you're right about the, uh, you know, taking more of a, a systems approach to this. Right. Yeah. Um, what opportunities did they outline specifically to building the workforce of the future to meet their challenges? Yeah, well, and again, Nicole, 
uh, I think has some great examples there of outreach to the local schools, uh, creating uh, apprenticeships within the plants. I think manufacturers as a whole, but even more so, I think the smaller manufacturers are going to have to be much more aggressive given our uh, our labor environment today about creating those opportunities and, and a much more uh, welcoming and kind of homegrown approach to getting the skilled workers that they need. And then looking down the road, you know, right now we have workforce coming in that isn't necessarily that interested in manufacturing. I think we've also got to become our own marketers, you know, show show the young people that you know, manufacturing isn't what you see in the old news clips of, you know, dirty, nasty, dangerous. Uh, it's really high tech and going to be more so as we head down the road. Yes, I, I actually have a uh, colleague that uh, when he's talking to manufacturers, he says, that, no, no, it's not like the flash dance you've seen. <laughs> right. yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and, and that's the other challenge is there are corners of manufacturing that are still going to be uncomfortable and potentially dangerous. And, and the key there is going to be that continued focus on how do you make it appealing because mm-hmm. you're going to have to get those workers. And where do you automate? Well, that's the other thing. You know, we hear so much of the downside of automation, but you know, a lot of the safety advances we've had have come because of automation and, and making those dangerous or even, you know, the jobs that created repetitive work injuries, those kinds of things, automate those and get people out of harm's way. Uh, given Ohio State's partnership in the Manufacturing USA Lightweight Innovations for Technology, or LIFT Institute, uh, I was also intrigued by your article on generative design. Uh, and yeah. How, yeah, and how to connect new produ- production technologies and methods uh, to speed up product design and development. W- would you explain to listeners some of the ways that manufacturers are using gener- generative design to their advantage? Yeah, well, and I'm going to preface that with I'm no expert on generative design. That was a really cool article to do because of the opportunity it gave me to learn about it. I'd heard quite a bit kind of in passing and hadn't really delved into it. So um, that being said, I did get some great introductions to things that have been done. I think a lot of people have seen the wheel that they did for the uh, the rebuild of the, I believe it was a 62 Volkswagen bus. Uh, and they did this wheel that looks like no auto wheel you've ever seen. And that's what I heard from the folks at Autodesk is when you go through the generative design process, you're gonna turn out things that would will look like nothing a human's ever gonna come up with because we have these preconceptions about our own you know, legacy ways of making things that color the way we design it. Whereas now when you couple generative design with things like 3, 3D printing, you know, all bets are off. You can make things in very different ways. Uh, the Airbus example of the, the bulkhead, uh, I don't know if you've heard about that one. It's just a wall in an airliner and they took a look at it, uh, thought generative design might be a way to reduce mass. And so they came up with one design that would have been a metal 3D print really wasn't feasible. So then they came back a year or two later and kind of worked it a whole different way to make a negative of the of the bulkhead, which you know became this almost like a lattice work of metal. Uh, and they created a mold for that, and now you know could potentially be commercially producing this lightweight bulkhead that's going to save all kinds of CO2 emissions and make their flights cheaper and all that. So great things out there. Yes, I mean it's it's just a, a it's really exciting, and you know I mean it's uh it's about as exciting as when I was uh, learning about the uh, principles of biomimicry. Oh right, yeah, 
Yeah. And yep. Taking the lessons learned from nature and using them in production. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the thing. You know, there's so many different ways to go about this stuff that we haven't even considered yet. And then these new technologies play with that. And it's like I said, it's just such an exciting time to be in manufacturing. And to do it quickly. I mean, you can get the right, results right. so quickly. Absolutely. Yeah, right away. Uh, I mentioned Fiesta China in the introduction. Uh, the company, oh, yeah. yeah, the company's competing in an environment clogged with foreign competitors. Uh, would you right. would you tell our, our listeners about Homer Laughlin China Company in West Virginia and how they've been able to successfully diversify their portfolio? Yeah, you know, it's, so this is a company that's been around since the mid 1800s. Uh, so they're not new to competitive challenges. They've obviously just been different over all the different years went through the Great Depression, so they can take on some tough things. Um, one of the big things I heard from them was the whole retail apocalypse. So when uh, things got ugly with online sales and so many retailers uh, either went under or hit the skids, it really took away from their business. And so they've looked at uh, you know, diversification being one big piece of what they have going on. So, you know, Fiesta wears this obviously very well-known, um, you know, brand that drives rabid adherence in some ways and certainly just a lot of market interest but it's it's not necessarily enough to sustain over the long haul so they also do food service applications and have uh, some big customers there cisco for example and then the other is online sales and you see that in a number of different uh, consumer product areas where these legacy companies that have only ever gone through distribution networks now are challenged to be their own distribution network. So uh, Homer Laughlin has online sales, they have their own uh, store on their factory site. And yeah, so it's a matter of keeping up with with, with what the current business challenges are. You know, have a company like that that's been around that long and you know, they just constantly have to be able to change and, and, and be on a different footing to keep up. Oh, they even had Great a, folks. Oh, they even had a, a little uh, factory outlet, a mini factory outlet store in our, our North Market, which is a place where you can oh, get really? artisanal cheeses and hot sauces. And, yeah. and here's Fiesta Ware right in the middle of this uh, yeah. market. And uh, I mean, it's, uh, it's the uh, gig economy writ large in some ways. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you have to be nimble in different ways. So it's a constant challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, getting to the general trends, um, what do you perceive as some of the most troubling and promising technology trends in manufacturing? I mean, we have augmented reality, we have uh, artificial intelligence, cloud computing, robotics and automation. I mean, a lot of these are associated with, you know, the, the industry for nomenclature. So, um, right. you know, what pops out to you? Well, I've done a good bit of work in 3D printing, and, and so that's one where you know, you have this three decades of, of history where there was this enormous hype early on and everyone was gonna have an, a 3D printer at home and make their own things and you know, that didn't quite pan out and it kind of went into the wilderness for a while. And I think now we are getting to the point where we're slowly getting to to actual production, uh, not the, the whole, wholesale rush that we expected in the beginning of the technology, but you see uh, especially in aerospace right now, uh, commercial parts being made with 3D printing. And then there's promise as that technology progresses that it's going to challenge other legacy uh, ways of making things. You know, one of uh, 
one of the folks in the thick of it said, you know, we're, we're never going to do away with injection molding, for example. That's always going to be the fastest and cheapest way to make a heck of a lot of things in a big hurry. But we can get closer to it. And then what what businesses does that open up to us? And, and how do we chip away at that and uh, create this whole new way of making things? That's, and then we touched on it as well with generative design is there are things out there we're not even considering because we don't even know enough yet as people continue to work with 3d printing what are those things we can make what are those ways to make things that we haven't ever even fathomed because we were constrained by our old ways of doing things or even constrained constrained by the machinery and right uh, absolutely right yeah and so this combination of uh, subtractive and additive processes i mean that just completely opens up the door well, right, yeah, the hybrid approach where you're using both in parallel and uh, making things that uh, that uh, incorporate both methods, it's crazy, things you can't even picture. We've been talking about when are we going to get to the 3D printed die. The, I'm sorry, the, the 3D printed die, you know, the... the, the... <laughs> The way to well, you know to you know the up the next level of tool and die. Yeah, and that's already happening. In fact, I've got a story from oh, it's a good while ago, on um, conformal cooling that three D printing allows. It doesn't change the die itself, but it changes the cooling to where you know with an old die, the only way you could have cooling channels is to basically drill into it and have a straight shot of coolant going through. Now you can 3D print the die and have coolant that's always equidistant from the part. And so it becomes much more efficient, much more effective, and Im it improves the, the uh, production. So it makes it quicker, it makes it more efficient. And yeah, so another thing where it's not about the part itself, it's about how you're making the part that 3D printing impacts. I don't know if you've, uh, I'm, I'm sure you've been exposed to this given that you're in um, in the land of auto manufacturing and, uh, you know, there's a lot of that happening here in the state of Ohio as well. But oh, I mean, yeah. you, you yep. go into rooms and warehouses are still full of just these gigantic dyes that are there because they have to keep right. the 15 or 20, you know, years afterwards for any right. kind of, you know, um, aftermarket parts. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny you say that. I, Early on in one of my 3D printing discussions, uh, let's see, it was Nick Ahrens from the Ahrens company that makes the snowblowers and lawnmowers, threw out to me that, geez, you know, you ought to go look at doing nothing but spare parts for companies like me and get us out of that business because it's such a, such a draw on our resources to maintain those years and years of, of records and dyes and all of that. Uh, 3D printing could take care of all that. I don't think we're there yet, but that's another golden opportunity is, you know, down the road, instead of calling up errands for a replacement for your, you know, 1990 snowblower, you get online and you order the part and someone zips it off on a 3D printer. Yeah, I probably shouldn't say this, but there are some um, elevators in our institution where the, the company that, uh, the very large company that works on elevators has said that they can't even find the parts anymore. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and so think about that. You know, you have a broken part in two pieces. No one makes it anymore. You send it off, and someone reverse engineers it, 3D prints it, and you're still in business with your old system, and it lasts you a few more years. Yeah, so uh, 
the, again, those opportunities we talked about that people aren't even thinking about that new technologies are going to are going to open up for us. Right. I've actually talked to a couple of startup companies that are doing, uh, you know, the on-demand job shop where they have a network of the, you know, tool and die makers and 3D printers and machine companies that are, are there uh, to produce a part. You know, they, they can get a quote to the company within, you know, a couple hours and they can be producing the part and have it shipped, you know, within 24 hours. Yeah. Yeah. The Amazon kind of approach to all of that it certainly uh, is another element of the whole business world, right? Is that uh, compression of the expectations of people for when things should be able to show up and how readily you're able to find it. Uh, so that's another challenge and opportunity, right? For manufacturers is being able to fulfill that need for instant gratification, uh, whether it's for a consumer product or for a piece for another manufacturer. Uh, we've actually been talking about this. Are there more foundational aspects of manufacturing that should continue to be a priority, you know, such as lean, you know, or even you know, building culture? I mean, what what do you see as you know the, the the standbys that need to remain while all of these new technologies are swirling around? Right. Well, one thing that is constant in my mind is we talk a lot about the training aspect of. Uh, building the workforce. What we don't talk a lot of, about is culture. And, you know, unfortunately, historically, manufacturing has kind of been this down and dirty, not just environment physically, but environment from a managerial and kind of uh, workplace uh, standpoint as well. And so as we look at those challenges with attracting and keeping employees, one thing that I think it's certainly been changing, but we'll have to change a lot more is just how we treat people um, you know how how uh, how we include everybody. How we uh, make sure that that the people we put into positions of authority understand the values and what we expect of them. Yeah, there's a whole culture aspect that a lot of people are talking about, and I think is still maybe in manufacturing. We're still a little bit behind on that. I think you know you mentioned lean. Lean to me is kind of a double-edged sword. I think. Uh, lean has brought enormous benefits to the manufacturing world. And I say lean, but you, know, you can include all these different uh, titles, lean, Six Sigma, continuous improvement, all kind of group um, those under one, yeah. even, one heading. Even uh, Toyota Way. Right, right. Um, what I think what I think we've got to look at is it's become its own gigantic bureaucracy as well. And when you create a bureaucracy for something, it's it's really got to be questioned, you know. Um, I wrote an article some time ago about how the plant I worked at that was both the worst performing plant and best performing plant uh, was one and the same, and we had no lean or continuous improvement methodologies at all. We just did smart things that took it from that worst performing to best performing over a few year period. A lot of the lean initiatives and, and ideas are along those same lines, but I look at things like the terminology and and you know this approach where you force feed things to people instead of allowing people to take it on themselves and i think there's still a lot of practitioners out there who might you know need to approach it in a different way there's plenty i've talked to who say yeah it's about the people first and if you're not starting that way you're starting wrong and i agree with them i mean it's uh, it's almost like the uh, 3m example 
you know, mm-hmm, where right. they, they, they became yeah. uber structured and then they lost their creativity. Right. Well, you hear so many horror stories about initiatives like that, that uh, are launched with great fanfare and start to show results. And then, you know, people cast their eyes somewhere else and it all falls apart. It's because it was never owned by the people who it really impacts from the get go. The, the success, uh, real success stories I've seen are the ones where you start by telling people, here's what I'd like to help you accomplish. Tell me how to do that. Tell me what's going to be effective for you. Uh, speaking of examples, I mean, can you um, provide some examples of some companies that you've uh, come across that do have that that culture? Go, yeah, I mean, they've got the I, good the good my, culture. My most popular my most popular article is about SRAM, the bicycle components manufacturer. They're headquartered in Chicago. Met with their CEO, and I think I even said something like "lean initiative" or uh, you know just kind of a quick term that came out of my mouth. He's like, you know, I don't like to go approach it that way. Lean is about culture. Lean is the way you do things. It's not a project. It's not an initiative. It's really uh, your way of doing business. And so he had a very strong background in in, uh, kind of heavy manufacturing that he brought to SRAM. And uh, they, even though they strike me as very uh, well-established in that, they're also questioning me, hey, who are some good people out there we can go talk to and learn more? I think that's another element of really being successful at it is you're never done learning. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the um, actually talking about learning, uh, are you uh, tracking the manufacturing skills that will be needed in the next 10, 20 years? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's obviously something that comes up with all the different people I talk to. And uh, we touched on all the technology stuff that's going on. And that is its own challenge. Uh, As you you upgrade existing systems with new technology, it changes what your needs are. You know, I think back to my days at General Mills, I was involved in the move from the old mechanical drive packaging machinery to servo drives. And, you know, we certainly still needed mechanical skills. We didn't do away with those. But the level of, of skill we needed to uh, maintain those servo systems, to troubleshoot those servo systems, it was a whole different scale. And so it's a challenge both when you first get into that, finding those skills and understanding what those needs are. But then as, as you uh, become more and more involved in that, you know, where are you going outside for those skills? Are you getting rid of people you have today? I think that's one real short-sighted approach that I've seen that we also have to challenge ourselves on is, can't we upskill the operators we have today to be those higher level uh, contributors and, and do those higher level level tasks? Um, I forget who it was I was talking to, one of the major uh, robotics companies, and they said, you know, you wouldn't believe, if you haven't looked at programming of robots in the last few years, how much easier and more uh, more intuitive it's become. So yeah, can we take the operators who are very skilled at running a machine and maintaining a mechanical machine and make them programmers? Absolutely. Are you, um, have you come across any um, programs, you know, whether it's earn to learn or educational workforce programs uh, that are seen to be, um, you know, doing it right, you know, are actually you know, working at the level that's that's needed for the the skills that are required well the most heartening thing i see is the robotics programs that are just crazy all over the country uh that to me goes straight to the heart of what we're going to need down the road and and it's 
amazing to see. You know, we're so down on the new generation, aren't we always, right? We're always smarter than the next ones to come along. <laughs> but I look at the opportunities these kids have today to um, build and, and compete with robots that were, you know, think back to when I was their age, it, it was science fiction. It was never going to happen. And now they're doing it as part of their school. It's amazing. So that's phenomenal. I, I um, talked to some of the 3D printing people to tell me how there are 3D printers in most schools nowadays. Uh, I have, my kids haven't gotten to that yet, but that's going to be cool to see. And, and they say, yeah, people worry about having skills for, for the technologies to come that's going to be a natural in the 3D printing world because they're all going to have seen it by the time they enter the workforce. That's true. Beyond that, I think there's a lot of excellent regional initiatives, local initiatives, whether it's uh, community colleges, tech colleges. And I think, you know, going back to what I said about manufacturers creating their own workforce, that's probably the biggest opportunity for small manufacturers to make sure you're partnering up with those institutions. Um, I just commented on LinkedIn yesterday about, you know, someone said, there was a quote from a manufacturer saying, it's pretty much gotten to where I need a two-year degree for all my people in my shop. Well, that's crazy. You know, our standard two-year degrees, and I'm not talking about tech tech degrees for mechanical engineering type stuff, but standard two-year degrees are mostly a waste for getting on the manufacturing floor, but um, create a, a an internship or a, um, a you know, a partnership where you're bringing people in from a tech college, training them on your systems while they learn skills. Now you've got workers coming in ready to get the floor running. Yeah, that's a quintessential example of an earn to learn program. Absolutely. Yeah. And they're, you know, if you really dig, they're everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, it, it's incumbent on us as manufacturers to make sure we're keeping current with what's in our locale, helping drive and, um, you know, line out what those needs are. It's it's a partnership that we can't neglect, or or we are going to find ourselves behind the eight ball. What are you tackling? Uh, what are you tackling next? What's uh, what's on the horizon for you? And what are you what are you covering? <laughs> yeah, um, that's a that's a great question because I usually have about a dozen things going <laughs> at any given time. I always have individual companies that I'm talking to and learning about. I love writing about individual companies, what they're doing, what their challenges are, what they see for the future. Um, so I've got several of those working right now. Um, Merrill Boots has a partnership with, I mentioned my friends at Stormy Cromer, and then I've got some other friends up in Duluth, Minnesota at Duluth Pack and Merrill's partner with these small manufacturers in the North Woods to to do co-branded products. So we got that coming out in the next few days. Uh, another one I'm looking at is China. You know, uh, swinging over to the other kind of global scale is uh, China has seen this enormous erosion of, of their export business. Now, the obvious answer is the tariffs, but I think there may be a bigger retrenchment going on, especially from the US where uh, there's been so much negative news in the recent months about China's human rights record, about China's uh, environmental moves. And I think coupling that with the tariffs and with just this, there's also a, a head of steam once again behind Buy American. I just think there may be a lot more happening there than is hitting the, uh, the, the media yet. That, you know, when the tariffs go away, will China bounce back? I, I don't know that they will. Not quite the same way. 
right? And you have manufacturers who are seeing the business sense and and staying local. Well, there's business sense. Um, you know, there's the factors I mentioned, and and another piece is just um, just risk reduction. You know, you have these ten thousand mile long supply chains. When something goes wrong, you can be out of business in a heartbeat. So, you know, when your suppliers 200, 300 miles away instead of 10,000 miles away. It's a whole different world of being able to ride uh, a natural disaster or some other negative event. So I think there is a lot of just rethinking about how we set up our businesses and where we source from. All right, we're gonna leave it there. Thank you so much, Jim, for coming on the show. Oh, it was a true pleasure. Thank you, Catherine.